It's Monday, September 11th, 2017. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 130 of the 5049 Podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thank you for joining us for another conversation between myself and another artist. Today, that artist is filmmaker, video artist, archivist, collector, thinker, Andrew Lampert. For those of you that know Andy, as I'm going to call him from uh, here on out, for those of you that know Andy, you know that today is going to be a good one. Today on the show, Andy Lampert. Before we get into it, just a couple of things to talk about. Um, as I mentioned last week, I want to remind you that this Saturday, September 16th, um, I'm going to be releasing digitally only the very first of a series of online releases. Uh, this is the first one. This is my trio with Mario Diaz de Leon and Toby Driver, two of my best friends and, and quite literally two of my favorite living composers. It's our collaborative trio, Blood Mist. It's a double live recording, all multi-track recorded um, from 2016 and 2017, two full-length concerts, uh, this Saturday. So go to 5049records.com if you want to uh, uh, pick those up. A lot more stuff is coming soon, and I'm really excited about this stuff. This Saturday, September 16th. I also want to sort of apologize and, and let you know that I'm aware that something is wrong in the 5049 RSS feed, and I'm, I'm taking corrective actions. Um, the short version of it is I have to re-upload every single audio file for every single episode, which, you know, there's 130 of them, so it's taken a minute. Uh, it's annoying. I'm sorry, but at this point, I think I've got maybe 50 of them re-uploaded. So just uh, be patient with me soon. I swear to God, I feel like I say this every other episode, everything will be running smooth. Um, sorry for any, for any annoying confusion. Today on the show, Andy Lampert. Um, you remember a few weeks ago, or maybe at this point a couple months ago, when I had Kenneth Goldsmith on the show, and and I mentioned that I'm sort of trying to broaden the the scope of of the kind of artists that come on the show. Today's a really good example of that. Andrew Lampert does a lot of things, um, many of which are directly related to the downtown scene of improvisers and 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 artists. Um, for 17 years, Andy was the archivist uh, at Anthology Film Archives here in New York, which is like, in my mind, in my estimation, it's like one of the holy sites of art, not just in New York, but in the world. Um, for several years, he was curator there as well. And quite honestly, um, in doing this introduction right now, it, it's it's sort of hard to to put all of Andy's output into just you know a succinct little nutshell. Um, Andy really does a lot of stuff from from lectures to to interactive performances with his video art. Andy is he's got a really immersive output. He writes a lot. Um, he's been featured quite frequently in in places like uh, uh, Bomb Magazine and and, um, you know, he just published an essay in the new Metrograph Journal. And Andy just he stays really busy and he does stuff on a very high level that Honestly, I'll say it again, it's kind of hard to, to put it all into a couple of words in a couple of minutes right here. 
one of uh, a few reasons I was interested in having Andy on, you know, because we didn't know each other super well before this conversation. We'd sort of encountered each other briefly uh, a number of times over the years, and we certainly have a lot of people in common. Um, but I feel a real kinship with Andy. Uh, I remember years ago, you know, he was one of those people I would see at the shows that I was going to, whether it was at Tonic or at the Vision Festival or, you know, he was he was a consummate concert goer. And then when I would go see stuff at Anthology Film Archives, I'd see him there. Um, but I, I just feel like Andy and I, you know, and and you'll hear, and I'm sorry if it's annoying to some of you. You know, the first 20 minutes or so of this of this episode, it's basically Andy and I, you know, jewing down, just talking about Jew stuff. And you know, I'm sorry, it's part of who I am. Um, Andy and I, I feel like we both came to New York uh, uh, with with a pretty big appetite for what New York had to offer, and and becoming part of that fabric was very, I think, important to both of us. So I, I you know, Andy and I on this episode, we talk a lot about our record collections, we talk about our early experiences in New York, we talk about you know a pretty broad range of things, and. You know, as I said with the Kenneth Goldsmith episode, like I'm not going to have anyone on this show who I don't think is going to be uh, interesting in a very direct way to the people who are on this show. And and I'm happy that if you aren't already familiar with Andy and what he does, that that, you know, this might be a nice introduction for you. If you want to find out uh, more about Andy and what he's up to um, and there's there's a lot of stuff uh, I'd encourage you to do so. Go to andrewlampert.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-W-L-A-M-P-E-R-T.com. Check him out. Uh, he's, he's, he's a cat, man. He's really interesting. And he's a funny guy. Andrewlampert.com. That's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Andy Lampert. The thing I fucking hate about going to the gym is that other people are watching me. That's why I don't go to the gym. I feel, I feel conscious about working out in a room with other people and showing how weak or flabby I am. No, that's there's that, and there's also just, like, the aspect of the gym that to me is important is, like, entertainment. Like, what am I going to... What are you going to listen to, or how are you going to... Like, how can I... Like, I can only measure how much time I, I can or would or want to exercise by... The length of a television show or something that like <laughs> or a podcast or something that's just gonna make me forget the tedium and uh pain of what i'm doing so i got well, i mean i i have there's actually a gym in nice. this building that i don't oh, really? use but when i used it to, must be kind of amusing i did realize like you know i feel like a lot of people go to the gym and it's their inclination to listen to like Metallica or something that's really like Some hard grinding, push. push yeah. I began listening to like William Basinski and like music oh. that was really sort of ethereal yeah. and yeah. you know kind of sort made of ambient. Yeah, but it also made the challenge and the, the work feel a bit more like um like I was pushing through something that I was being crushed by rather than me crushing it. Right. Well I, the problem that I had when I was trying to go to the gym was that I, you know, I had a particular time I would go and I would get onto one of the exercise machines that had television. Yeah. The television would be like, what's being broadcast right now? And it was similar to when my wife was pregnant and uh. we'd go for like the OBGYN appointments. We could usually go on Mondays in the morning 
And so whenever we went and you'd have to wait, you'd be stuck watching wait. The View it's the worst. or um, Rachel Ray. So the problem with having a specific schedule of knowing when you can go to the gym is knowing that I'm going to have to watch, like... <laughs> The Steve Harvey Show or something. Like, if you're lucky. If you're Steve, lucky. If you're lucky, the Steve Harvey Show. If you're not lucky, it's going to be like some show with like four cooks all the chew. in Crocs. The Chew. I, yeah, I fucking hate that shit. And I know what you're saying. And I started going to the gym at around 530 in the afternoon because for whatever reason, I have always my entire life been extremely comforted by local news. Sure, of course. Something about it. I like, get that. I is, get that. It calms me down and... It makes me feel safe in my home because I know that just outside my home, people are shooting each other and, you know, falling off windows and stuff. I know. I would probably actually be much more successful going to the gym if I went during Jeopardy. Mm -hmm. You know, that would give me a solid 30 minutes where I know I wouldn't leave because I don't want to leave before the end of Jeopardy. Like, mm -hmm. I want to know who wins. I want to do it myself. When was the last time you watched Jeopardy? Oh, God. It's not hard. No, no. I, I used to, and I wonder as I get older, because the only way I can really measure my trivial knowledge is against uh, Jeopardy. I uh -huh. used to have so much trivial knowledge. Right. And I haven't, it's true, I haven't watched it for a long time, so I don't know how much I've retained of just random facts. Well, so I stayed, I was staying in a hotel this past winter for like a week straight, yeah. and I got into the habit of watching Jeopardy every night when yeah, I got home. as one does. As one does. Not only were the questions like wicked simple, which made me wonder, like, have I just, have they always been this simple and right. I'm just like old enough to realize it? Or are people like really dumb because they were missing a lot of pretty easy questions? Well, I was once uh, years ago, I had a, um, a girlfriend who uh, lived in uh, Iowa for the summer and I went to um, visit her. And I don't remember what town this was, somewhere in like the Four Corners or was something. The writers conference or something? No, she was working for a newspaper, but like in a really like two street town and um, I was bored, and I had to hang out until she was down at work. She had an internship. So I went to a bar, and in the bar there was a pool table and, like, you know, five day drunks hanging out. Yeah. And I sat there, and um, I wasn't going to drink because it was, like, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, but Jeopardy was on. Uh -huh. So I ordered a soda and watched it. And everybody there was, like, calling out the answer. So I started doing it, too. But I just kept nailing it, and people were looking at me, side glances, Who is this? and then yeah. Bobby Fisher of Jeopardy. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, when I when I uh, got to the commercial break, I think between like Double Jeopardy and Final Jeopardy, um, I just never forget this guy looked at me and he said, "You must be one of them East Coast book learned people." <laughs> Jew. <laughs> yeah, Jew. And I, and I just looked at him and I just sort of smiled and nodded. And then after uh, Jeopardy was over and I had got Final Jeopardy, whatever it was, um, this guy asks me, uh, you want to play pool? So I said, yeah, okay. And so we played one game and I um, and I won. And he says, you want to play again? I said, sure. We play another game and I won. And I'm, I'm okay sure. at pool. I'm not, like, great. And then on the third time, the guy says to me, you want to make it interesting? Oh, God. And I just I said it to him, like, and I probably is snotty as this. I'm like, what kind of idiot you think I am? You lose two games of pool, and then you want to make a bet? Come on, man. Uh-huh. And um, he gave me a look. I'll never forget. It really was like, get out of here now, or I'm going to kill you. And so really? I, 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 I sort of backed out, you know, and, and walked away. Luckily, it was around 5 o'clock, yeah, and yeah, she yeah. was free. But, man, calling him on that. 
and then having been the you know uh, East Coast champion of Jeopardy, the two things. There's so many things to unpack in that story you just told. Uh, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, especially now, like, did you see that? that <laughs> yeah, in 2017, in the yeah. era of like newly minted anti-Semitism. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you condoned see, anti-Semitism? Yeah. Well, did you see that NRA commercial? No. They, like, they put out this commercial, or I don't know, Whatever. An advertisement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's this uh, new woman who's the spokesperson of the NRA. She's this very attractive, sort of like late 30s, early 40s white woman. And she's like looking into the camera, giving this impassioned plea that, you know, the media elites. Oh, yeah. I wonder who that means. You know, uh, like, yeah, yeah. you know, who are who are coming after our freedoms. Like we must stand against them with an iron fist. And it's like she's basically saying, shoot. But she's talking to yeah, because she's talking to, to gun owners. Right. It's not talking to the general public. It's talking to a specific niche group of the armed public. Right. But you, as like the clever oh, yeah. Jew in that yeah. bar, certainly. Oh, I know. I thought about this. You know, I when I was a kid, I got um, and I grew up in St. Louis, and so we moved to a new neighborhood at one point, and um, there were kids in the neighborhood, and we started playing. And this is the only time I remember as a kid outright getting anti-Semitic uh, slurs at me is that the guy across the street from us was a Shriner, and he had in his garage the little Shriner mobiles, the little, you know, like yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. like on the cover of, um, uh, was it Frankenchrist or whatever? Yeah, 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 yeah. with the little cars. Yeah, and, the little yeah. cars, right? Um, and he would let, every once in a while, the neighborhood kids come over and ride them. And so, you know, I ran over with the kids one afternoon and tried to get in one, and he said, no, you can't ride one. I said, why? He said, because you're Jewish. And I don't remember exactly what I said. I would have been in second grade, maybe. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I, I cursed at him and uh, took off, and I told my mom. And then uh, my mom told my dad when he got home, and I remember watching him go across the street and have some kind of argument with the guy. And the man died, like, a few years later. Uh-huh. Um, but probably a couple years later, when he died kind of uncharacteristically for my family we were all just like yay he's dead we were so happy that this bigot was gone yeah uh and then uh, just the the present day is that when uh the first uh assault on jewish cemeteries happened where they cut down gravestones Mm -hmm. that was like my family's cemetery in st louis Louis. yeah the one where um mike pence went and actually you know um helped clean the stones or whatnot right but I, you know, I grew up in St. Louis, which has a Jewish community. I mean, every so city's got one. Everybody's community. got one. Yeah. I always sort of felt like, I, I didn't feel like there, we were so much a minority because I just knew so many Jews. Right. And if I thought about it, like at my school or wherever, yeah, I mean, there weren't that many. But also, I wasn't like a Hebe. You right. know, I, I was just sort of a, a reform. Yeah, you went to temple. I mean. Every once in a while, I went right. to temple, you know, things like that. But I had a Jewish identity, you know. Uh, increasingly where are your so. from? Uh, Midwest. Uh, Your my parents father. are Midwest Jews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, originally, I mean, uh, Russia, Poland. But how far back? Two generations, three generations. Uh, my father's mother was born in uh, Poland, and my father's father was the first born in the U.S. His, mm. his siblings were born in somewhere in Russia. Do you know uh, where in Poland your mother's father came? Uh, my my father's mother. Uh, father, yeah. Some some village that doesn't exist anymore. He went over and looked. Okay. It's gone. It's so late. Removed off the map. I don't know where it's near. Even wasn't Helm. I don't think so. Okay, right, I don't think right. so. All right. Um, and then he found out through talking to local historians that uh, the family's 
name probably had Lithuanian origins, mm-hmm. which was total news to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my mom's family, uh, like Chicago, I don't know where, you know. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I just had sort of like moved to New York, and I've lived here longer than I lived in St. Louis. And um, I'm Jewish, and I... I'm just Jewish. Like, there's no hyphen. This is what I am, you mm-hmm. know? Even if I don't go and uh, do much about it, mm-hmm. that's who I am. And that's who I culturally relate my history to. You know, when I look at the great history of uh, Jews in every field, it's like, yeah, cool. I'm one of those. It's but just... then seeing the graveyard thing yeah, really was a uh, like popping a balloon in a certain sense uh-huh. about uh, Jewish identity outside of the bubble I live in. In my own head, right, as well as in New York City, right. you know what I mean. That like, oh yeah. shit, we are in 2017, and not too much has changed. No, I mean, I did you ever see that movie, The Believer, with Ryan Gosling? It's like one of his first roles. Ah, uh-uh. dude, I watched it many, many years ago. It's from like 2000, 2001. Does he play Jewish? He plays a yeshiva student who what? who is like exceptionally bright and really you know asks a lot of questions. Uh. Turns into a neo-Nazi skinhead. Uh, wow, and but the anti-Semitism that he sort of preaches throughout the film, like it's really, really intense. And do you ever read that book that Anthony Coleman was like suggesting to everyone uh, uh, by Sandra Gilman, Jewish oh, self, uh, Jewish self hatred? I, I uh, yeah, I never, I didn't read it uh, cover to cover, but right, I, he he talked to me about it once. Yeah, and it's it's an amazing book. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, the self haters wasn't that his group? It was my favorite band to ever come out of downtown New York. Yeah, yeah, it's great. But there, you know, a lot of and I, you know, you, you, I've always wondered because, like, you know, you'll never meet a Jewish person who will flat out say, "I'm not a Jew." Like, like even if they're not religious, oh, yeah. even if they think everything about the religion is completely idiotic and superstitious, they'll still say, "I'm a Jew." Well, I feel like you know uh, because it's a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking. It's, it's also a- an identification. Also, I always wish that on forms when it had like you know. Uh, Different boxes to check. I could, the Jewish was a was like a, a, a race. Kind of glad it's not. It's because... a no, of course it's not. It would be we're bad, but always just like, am I white? I guess I'm white. I wish I could just be Jewish. But see, that very thing, that very instinct that you have, is something that the anti-Semites latch on to. Oh, sure. You know, and like I personally feel like I'm the first generation born in this country, and I have all kinds of issues based around you know my makeup and and how I felt around other kids growing up. I personally feel, and like when I say this, I'm like, am I saying something anti-Semitic? I do feel that the further Jewish people get away from trouble, the less Jewish they become. The further we get from from conflict, the 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 more assimilated you become, the less Jewish you become. I think like like by nature, we need to be wanderers. We need to be people battling conflict. It's funny too because on the flip side of that, I feel like no matter where. Um, you're from if you become a if you get to be an old New Yorker you turn into a Jew yeah like it's, it's like the flip side like you go to the Upper West Side everybody's an old everyone's Jew everyone's an old Jew up there everyone <laughs> everyone everyone's at uh, Zabar's Zabar's and Barney yeah yeah just being just being like old cranky Jews yeah but I think something you and I both have in common <laughs> is like I moved to the Lower East Side at age 22 uh. and very quickly was like, okay, I found my place. Like, I feel very good here. I feel very connected to this history and have sort of, you know, like false modesty aside, I've become somebody of a person in the neighborhood. And yeah, I, you sure, know, sure. and yeah, I feel yeah. like, like you had something similar. Like, with. Well, it's, you know, with the Jewish thing, like, yeah, you know, I grew up 
you know, we went to high holidays. Um, I had a uh, bar mitzvah, but I got kicked out of Sunday school. I never completed Hebrew school. I kind of phonetically learned everything I needed to yeah, do yeah, yeah. so I could have a party or whatnot. And I felt really bad about that for years that I kind of took a vow I didn't understand. You felt bad. I just felt like, you know, I was like mucking around somewhere I didn't, um, that, that has a heaviness. Uh, to it that I didn't comprehend, uh-huh. and I agreed to some rules I didn't um, uh, read. You know, before signing the so contract, you, felt like, I, you my, felt like you were duping Judaism, or you felt like you'd been duped. No, I don't think I felt like I'd been duped. I felt that like I was uh, a fake. I think it's like a. I think this is like a fake syndrome. Mm-hmm. But I will say that one of the things that got me in touch with uh, having Jewish pride, besides realizing that so many like great artists uh, and cultural figures who I uh, admired were Jewish was Zorn, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and radical Jewish culture. Absolutely. You know, when around the time of Masada and the radical Jewish culture festivals, mm-hmm. um, and which I was aware of all of that before I moved to New York. When did, then, what year did you move here? Uh, 1995. Okay. Uh, but I, I discovered Zorn's music when I was in seventh grade, so like 89, Naked something City? like that. No, um, it was the cover of Spillane. Yeah. It was just the cover. Mm-hmm. I was very much a um, buy something or rather take it out of the library because of what it looked like. That yeah. was my MO as a kid. It's still kind of my way of uh, looking at things if I don't have a cultural pinpoint as to why this object is in front of me, you know? And, uh, so I was following Zorn and then into Naked City um, and things like that. But when the radical Jewish thing happened and, and you know, awareness of uh, Klezmer and other things like that, I um, I definitely felt like, hell, cool, yeah, this is something I want to feel uh, a kinship with. Mm-hmm. And this also is a way of being Jewish that doesn't seem to have to mean like celebrating the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like it was like a way of raising a, a, a Jewish flag rather than an Israeli flag, the way of uh, feeling connected to a history without having to um, go through the ritual mm-hmm. of the everything. Dogma and the yeah, and uh, understand that uh, Judaism is a cultural uh, identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the one that's at the foreground of who I am, but it's the kind of whether I like it or not sort of uh, architecture mm-hmm. or infrastructure of who I am, my sense of humor, mm-hmm. I realize is totally connected to uh, Judaism. Um, you know, certain ways I think about, like, <laughs> this, is, this is a perfect one. <laughs> I don't really drink that much. Okay. And I totally think of that as a Jewish thing. It's totally a Jewish thing. And yeah. that's, like, the least Jewish thing about me is I drink like a maniac. Right. Well, yeah. there you go. No, and the, the probably the most Jewish thing about me is, like, two beers – I'm cool. I got to fall asleep. <laughs> I'm going to fall asleep. Yeah. Red wine makes my jaw tinkle. Like all this like old Jewish man shit. Yeah. Comes up when I drink a lot. Or the other part of me, it's like, I'm not going to go spend $70 tonight on drinking. Right. Where like the cheap Jew part of me comes out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, why would you waste that kind of money? I had a filmmaker friend once we were in a bar and he's a very, very talented filmmaker, but, uh, not Jewish, drank like a fish, smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. Mm-hmm. Was complaining to me about how he didn't have any um, 
money, couldn't get on with this next project of his. And I um, dared to suggest that if he didn't, like, drink seven, eight beers at a bar every night yeah, and smoke two packs a day, he'd have a lot of money to buy film. Uh-huh. I mean, he talked to me again, but it was never the same. <laughs> we we conversed, but there was a there was a, a palpable gap. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that 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 put a spike in things. But it was so like the logical, right? Jewish man in me, right? You know, and that's where when you get older, um, you have to fight becoming your parents, right? Like, and with my father. My father's so funny that he would, um, this is, I, I think of this as like, and this is like when Jews make Jewish jokes, it's okay. It's not mm-hmm. okay if other people make mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. My father's such a cheap Jew that he will drive 10 miles away to get gas. It's like two cents cheaper per gallon. For real? Yeah. 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 Or if he's like at Costco or something like that, he would buy a 96 pack of pens because... You know, they're three cents each, and that's a good deal. But at a restaurant, he's he's just, he's just going to eat off the bread let, and let me, we'll share a plate. Let, let me tell you, as a Jew, as someone who's worked in restaurants since they were 13 years old, oh, and as yeah. someone who doesn't talk to his dad anymore, don't go out to dinner with your parents. Ugh. Jews, at a, some, a certain point in a Jew's life, they go into restaurants, and not only do they see the menu as just a suggestion, <laughs> one, <laughs> two, <laughs> totally. there is... This conversation that has to take place, like there's a famous joke in the service industry about this, which yeah. is, what did the waiter say to the table of Jewish women? What is anything all right here? <laughs> well, also and, and, starting and, with the seat, how many times do you have to be moved until the, it's an okay? Right. Enough they're too seat. close to the air conditioning. They're too close, too close to, the to the door. They're close to the bathroom. They're too close to the table. It's being too loud. I, I managed Russ and daughters for a number of years. Like you can only imagine. Uh, you 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 went to war. I've put in my hours. I'm like, surprised that you didn't come back with like one leg. <laughs> you know, that's like a landmine that you're like treading through every day over there. I mean, as good as it is, the clientele. Half tourists, half Jews. Yeah. Oh, boy. But there's also, I mean... No, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, yeah. But so, the last time I actually saw my dad, you know, my dad lives in Poland. Mm. And there's a very deep, you know, I'm going to try and give you the quick version of this, and then we can talk about stuff besides yeah, Jews. Yeah, sure, but, sure. I like Jews, though. I like Jews, too. I have a... Well, my dad lives in Warsaw, Poland. And outside his apartment, there's this like kind of trendy coffee shop. And when I uh, first, the first time I went to visit him, when it was just open, he's like, "Oh, this place is great. They got the great espresso." Da da da. Should go. We drinking coffee there every day. I go back to visit him like a year or two later, and I was like, "Oh, let's go down to Coffee Heaven." Was the name of the place. He's like, "Fuck that. I don't go there anymore. They steal from me." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" And he's like, "I'm convinced that the guy making the coffees is skimming off some of the espresso." And like he had this concocted this whole psychotic theory about <laughs> this barista like double dipping into the right, the grinder. Right, right. And I was like, "You're crazy! Like you're out of your mind! Like that's not possible!" Da, 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 da. The last day that we're there visiting, we're at the airport. We're about to get on a plane. Generally, there's one to two years between our visits, so you know yeah, I yeah. want to savor the moment. There's a coffee heaven in the airport. Okay, you dig? Not the one that he was suspicious of, but just a right, sister. Yeah, right, right, yeah. right. And he starts accusing the barista there of theft but not their theft the theft of like the person that works at the one 20 miles away and this is going on they're going back and forth in polish this is like an 18 year old girl and she's like i don't know what you're talking about and i'm telling my dad i'm like hey our plane leaves in 10 minutes do you want to put this on hold and i'm here 
Yeah. I won't be for long. Right. Right. Let's talk. And it just like it. it oh, God, it burned. I, I my father was visiting and um, we went up. To, he was like up in the Upper West Side. And we went up there and he said he found some restaurant for us to eat at that was like owned by Lady Gaga's parents. Mm-hmm. I said, all right, sure. You know, I don't care. And what's one thing in the world I don't care about at all? Lady Gaga. Right. I I mean, if you said Dolly Parton owned it, I'd be like, wait, really? <laughs> right. You know, cool. I, I'd be really into it, you know, but yeah. uh, Lady Gaga, no way. Yeah. And so we go there and my father has to make cute with every um, waitress, waiter, anybody who's service industry, yeah. you know, he has to ingratiate himself with them. I think in order to get the special order thing happening, I, I don't know what his method is, but um, we went there, and the whole time, all he could talk about was Lady Gaga. And then when, like, the waiter comes over, he's asking, so does Lady Gaga ever come in? Oh, God. And it's just, just things like that. And oh, I mean, as a now as a parent, and, you know, not being a kid anymore, and, and being with this person, I don't have more sympathy or patience. I just have given up getting angry about it because uh-huh. I just have a low level anger about it in uh-huh. general. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? So like this uh-huh. specific incident, I don't, I don't be like, dad, stop it. You know, like I used to just do that. You know what? I'm going to be out of here and I'm just going to survive it. Uh-huh. But that's how he has to deal with it every day. So to me, it's like he's suffering. Yeah, I think that's not just be able to have like normal experiences, where, you know, like it's a, you're suffering. Yeah, you know, where you have to perform everything or uh-huh. make everything about you. Or like I don't, I don't want it to be about me. Right, right. You know, I feel bad when I have to put special orders in. Right. You know, like please no, no. Um, like, don't um, use any butter. Please use olive no oil. No crema. You know, right. I don't like crema on. Like I don't need a, a mayo. I hate mayo. You know what really? I mean? Oh, I hate mayo. Yeah. You know, so you know, say no mayo, but like that's not a that's not over the top, but like right. the kind of like I'd like a cheeseburger. Hold the bun, make the cheese uh, bacon. Right. You know, make the burger turkey, dude. <sighs> yeah, it, it, it could bring up seething I, I, rage. Yeah, I could feel my my chest getting tight right now. <laughs> well, let's talk about this. This is a fucking fantastic. That Jimmy Drew free record. It's a great record. So. That Such a great record. to me is like a holy like for so we were talking about collecting collecting yeah, out there. Yeah, when this came out like two years ago, I couldn't believe it. It's all ever, anyone was talking about. It's so good. Yeah. I put it on a best of list for Bomb Magazine or something. Like I just uh what's the one like with um with, with Joe Chambers? Which is crazy. Joe crazy. Chambers and yeah, that was so weird. And it works so well. Yeah, what a yeah, great yeah. record. Do you know Joe? No, I don't. Man, you know, I'm not going to go there. I have a very dark Joe Chambers story. Oh, okay, okay. No, yeah, no, I don't know. I, you know, my my uh, one of my favorite records is the uh, what is it? The trio uh, fusion. Yeah, 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 yeah. With Paul Blay and with Steve Paul Blay and Steve Swell. It's the best the, thing ever. The one with uh, the track um, now not Jewish, but uh, uh, Carla Blay. Jesus Maria. <sighs> yeah, it's the best thing ever. Oh yeah, I don't. It's the best thing ever. All music. Should be measured by that track. I could not agree more. Yeah, I mean, that's that to me is just the height of that. You know, there's a few records that just like you put them on and go like, what? That one? There's one by um, George Lewis and Douglas Ewart uh-huh. on um, Black Saint. It's got two. Each each uh, side is a single track. That's uh, trombone and then uh, Ewart on um, flutes and um, electronics. Uh-huh. I can't pronounce the name even if I knew it. I can't sure. remember it. Those, like those two records, it's just like 
You don't need anything else. And, oh, yeah, no, you don't need anything else. That's like, I feel that way about certain Evan Parker records, like a couple of the mm. solo records where I'm like, oh, it's all there. Yeah. It's a, or like, you know, uh, uh, First Meditations by Coltrane. There's like certain records. It's, just, it's all there. Well, there's music, you know, when I think about it, it's kind of always like, what can I actually, either because of familiarity um, or because I'm just so, I mean, so in tune with it. Like, what can I work to? Yeah. Because I used to be, when I was younger, I could um, have a lot of music on and, and still have a normal life. And then it got to be a point, as my listening habits changed, uh, if I got a new record by, you know, by Ivan Kang or, or, or particularly Coggle, like, uh-huh. stop everything, sit down, listen. It's right. like It's like a sonic uh, event. Um, and now... Because I got shit to do, and I still want to listen to music, I have to kind of... There's some music that's too much of a distraction for me. Either because it has lyrics, and I can't write and listen to words at the same time. My brain won't do that right. anymore. Or it's new, and I find myself zoning out of what I should be doing and listening. Because it's an overpowering experience to to hear new music. So I have to lock into stuff I kind of know or have a familiarity with. And uh, there's a few records. I mean, like the, that one, the Jufri, the Jufri uh, uh, trio and quartet, um, that George Lewis record, um, uh, the legendary Hassan, which is a piano trio, Max Roach, George Duvivier, maybe, and uh, this guy. He recorded one record uh-huh. on Atlantic. Dalachinsky turned me onto it years ago. Fuck, brilliant record. The only person besides Dalachinsky I know who who knew Hassan was um, Sabir. Uh-huh. Can I talk with him? He knew him from, somehow from Philly or something. But this guy recorded one record. And then when I really have to write, even though I have tons of, of music, I somehow keep going to like West Coast jazz and like oh, Spock jazz. Yeah, I vibraphones. Can, and... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just got a great vibraphone record that um, I had seen around but never bought, and you know, sporadically. Khan Jamal, uh-huh. Johnny Diani, and Pierre Dorge. Pierre Dorge was the reason I never bought that because I, I, I kind of didn't know who he was. Right. Danish guitarist. It's not a fiery record. Oh. It's a great record, though. Yeah, you know, yeah So yeah. all of these kind of... It's so funny how my listening habits change. What I want to own changes. And my fear, as we were talking about before we started recording this, of downsizing and getting rid of my collection is I'm getting rid of the stuff I don't want to listen to right now. But right. in five years plus maybe i want to listen to harsh noise music again maybe i want to listen to uh you know all the charles ives records i have again instead of just the two i know i need to keep right you know or uh, all the stuff that i have boxed up ready to go but then if i think about it like what about those solo oh god what's the guy the saddest saxophone player in the world Caro abe yeah 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 the, the solo series of records i have live at pit in or something right. where it's just like where it sounds like a Junkie dying through a saxophone mouthpiece. It's basically what that's a good description of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, if I keep one instead of all eight volumes, I think I'm going to be okay. You know, but it's all that's you battling that collector. But here's what I would say is like nothing, and I've said this on here a million times. So, but as a kid, the place where I was like, oh, I know where I belong was in first, it was comic book stores. Sure, of course, me too. And then bookstores and record stores always newsstands you know and like when i think about i close my eyes and i think about a newsstand and what it smells like is <laughs> the pages of the paper burnt coffee and like buttered rolls 
you know, and maybe and back when we were in bubble gum and cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But and but one of the things I dig about it, one of the things like when I'm sitting in this room right now, surrounded by all this fucking shit, is like I don't know, like right there, there's a copy of the Psychic Bible. Oh yeah. I've looked through it. I have not spent any time with it, significant time, but I know it's there. That's all you need for when I'm ready to jump into it, and I need it around me. Oh, well, I have I have thousands of books. I have thousand couple thousand records i have you know a thousand definitely more thousand plus cds you know 50 box sets whatever i have tons of stuff and um, in terms of getting rid of things i have different regiments like with books the first thing that usually goes is and this for credit at like a used bookstore that i like in brooklyn um or on the street just because who else just just get out of my life yeah uh it's fiction books yeah i'm not totally. gonna return if I need a copy of Old Man of the Sea, it's a dollar away. Right. You know, but art books, things that have perceived um, research value mm-hmm. or financial value, I hold on to. But then it starts to become a slippery, slippery slope, particularly like in like the realms of like hundreds of poetry books. Like I don't know when I'm going to return to some of these things right. again. And I look at them and I go, "Well, poetry." More than any other genre, you don't necessarily have to read it cover to cover. So they're there for this return journey. But so many of the other books I have, I look at them every day and I go, why do I have this? Why do I have this? But I can't let myself go. The CDs, it became like a whole um, medium that I felt like I could be done with, particularly once I discovered Spotify and things like that Mm -hmm. and realized that uh, particularly music that came out in the digital era already will survive in other digital formats, and I don't have the same preciousness as I do around vinyl. And vinyl, I had more or less stopped buying for a period of time, as everybody did. Right. And now it's back, and I have found that... And John Corbett says this uh, in uh, one of his books. You know, he stopped buying records more or less. I mean, he still, I'm sure, gets tons of records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But because he realized he had the best record store around. <laughs> and I kind of feel like that too. You know, when I, when I go to my shelf and I pull something out, I don't even, I used to know everything I owned. I used to remember everything where I had purchased it, what I paid for it. And then it just got into the slippery slope of like, why do I own three of this Dave Burrell record? Right. You know, or what is going on over here? Like, I have this whole James Brown thing. I didn't realize I own this stuff on vinyl. And so I keep going back to my own collection and yet continue adding More things shit. into it. But the one thing with books, with records, with CDs, with whatever, I can accumulate, but I can't create the time it takes to listen or devour or experience all these things. Of course not. I mean, you, but... That's what I want more. I mean, we all do. But right. I, I, if I could just... Um, not have a material attachment but like let's say just keep like a running list of the things that i like and like have access to those things i mean i guess i'm talking about the cloud Mm -hmm. i hate the cloud yeah it's very unreliable but here's one thing i would say and this is like at the bottom of the list for why i think it's important to keep these things it's not a you know a very important thing but in my uh life i am around younger people um who are open-minded and are not completely like filled to the brim with shit yet who are like hey what's cool stuff 
And oh, yeah. I'm able to be like, hey, have you ever read Wilbeck? Check this out. It's going to fuck you up really good. Or like, you've never heard uh, George Lewis play trombone? Check this out. It's really right. going to fuck you up pretty good. You know? Right, right, right. So I think it's it's important to be a person who has amassed all this information. It can really sort of like guide people to like the choice stuff. Oh, I definitely get that. I, and I, you know, I think that's part of a reason of why to keep something around is to like hip somebody to it or to keep it in my consciousness because you know looking in friends is that your array of cds um and you know the first thing that my mind does is race to the crossover right that, oh i have you know i have 50 percent of what you have right like right, right right and it's this weird old school way of um uh judging someone Right, it's like totally. You, you, First thing you do when you go into someone's house, you yeah, look at yeah. their bookshelf. Yeah, you look at their shelves and you go, "Oh, this person's hip." You know, this person's cool. Oh, we have this in common. Oh, they have. Um, oh, they have one copy. They have a copy of On the Road sitting next to Chicken Soup for like the Secretary Soul. You're like, "Oh, this person's whack." Yeah, yeah, totally. You you can totally do that. And now with people's identities, and also I have to say, being older and caring less right. about something like that, because I don't need uh, material objects to represent who I am in the right. world, uh, particularly if I haven't actually ingested them in any way or significant way. But it really was kind of like a um, cultural marker, you know, when you met somebody over at their house and you would realize, like, yeah, we could have something in common. Uh-huh. You know? And I, I find it in different ways now. But And, of course, that's kind of uh, surface in a way. But listen, if somebody really likes Evan Parker records, you know you're in a club. Right. You know? And, and whether you want to be in that club or not, that's the person that you you have the most in common with, you know, in the room. If you know, like live at the Beak Doctor or whatever is like, uh, like the, the uh, Bruce's Finger Records or whatever, like that's the one. It's like right. All right, we're we're like um, we're in the same dark alleyway together. That's so funny. I, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine a few years ago who you know really close. He knows me really well, and I was doing that really obnoxious thing that like some musician performer type people do which i was complaining i was like dude i get all these emails from these fucking guys who are like clearly like emotionally stunted living out <laughs> in the middle of nowhere lonely people who are like really into what i'm doing and uh and he's like first of all he called me out for being an asshole but then he was like have you listened to your music like who do you think that's gonna be <laughs> finding its way to like, uh, you like you need to respect that you yeah, need to yeah, honor yeah. that and become more sensitive to that and i have i think a lot of that i think about this as a performer that you know when i go to any town even in new york you know where people you feel like come like a, a lot of times out of like social obligation but like you go somewhere and three people show up to your show like who the fuck am i they could be doing anything so yeah. I, I i have to always continue to remind myself that uh anybody who is in my audience could be doing anything else they could be watching the bachelor they could do being whatever mm -hmm. but they chose to come to me so I I appreciate them, even if I don't really <laughs> always get them. Like, why would you come to my show? Right. But the other aspect of this of being in New York for so long and going to hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, experimental music shows for so many years. I, mean, I used to go four nights a week to see music. Yeah. Is that you came to realize or how you sometimes wanted to differentiate yourself from the other eight guys uh -huh. who went to four nights of music and who seemed like freaks to me right or who were like um overly zealous or not cool or had or really weird social weird so skills. weird and awkward competitive yeah. social skills uh uh who are more awkward than i am and you go wait a minute 
I don't want to make my make it out like I'm the cool one amongst these six guys, but right. like I don't identify with them. We just happen to like the same thing, and it's a little scary. Yeah, it's a little bit scary that we, uh, you know, we all like, um, you know, Milford Graves as much, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then on the flip side of that is you go to something like you know some show where there's tons of people there. And you're like, who are all these people? Right. Not that there's like, um, they're posers or something, but it's just the all other shock of when people show up. You know, I had I had a gig um, at Issue. I don't know when. End of last year. Uh-huh. Uh, end of 2015, and um, it was at Artist Space down in. Um, oh, not the bank vault they use. No, no, right. not not over there. Down there, and um, it was very very full. Uh-huh. You know, uh, it was at artist space. Maybe it was like eighty people, something like that. Uh-huh. And I just kept thinking my whole time, like I saw the people who I knew scattered throughout. Everybody else, like, who are you? Mm-hmm. Why are you here? Mm-hmm. Like, do you just go to everything the issue does? Because you're not coming for me, right? Like, what, what? Are you confident in that assessment? Uh, well, I'm confident in that something, some stars aligned that brought this audience that um, I don't feel are my audience if I have one. Because I don't recognize them, and I'm not sure I ever saw them again. You know, it's right. subsequent shows. So it was, and I do think that in the way that, like, for a generation, maybe like what the Knitting Factory was at a certain age, like in like let's say in the '80s until like the mid to late '90s, uh, that whatever they were doing was interesting. Mm-hmm. Like if I was to like when I, once I went to um, Stockholm, and uh, there's a jazz club there. I forget what it's called. Uh, Benny Goodman Cafe or something like okay. that. Yeah, that sounds about right. And I just went because something was going to be on and I was by myself. Yeah. And I figured, I don't know what else to do in Stockholm at night. Right, like, right, right. I had I had a gig two days later, but like I had no friends. Yeah. So I went and checked it out. So I kind of think that these clubs, these places, have a certain aspect of like, let's see what's in the stone at oh, that's like, definitely the 8 idea. p.m. on a Thursday night. I'm from France. Right. Right. Well, when I used to work the door there, yeah, it wasn't that common, but with pretty good frequency, uh, some like a couple, like a German a tour, a couple of German tourists, like a fifty-year-old <laughs> yeah, totally. couple, would turn up at the door and literally be like, uh, "Is this the jazz club uh, ruled by John Zorn?" You know, like literally in those words, <laughs> or is John Zorn here? <laughs> No, of course he's not. <laughs> but it's the same thing as like your dad going to that restaurant and being like, "Hey, is oh, yeah, uh, sure. Lady Gaga here?" Yeah, yeah. She just have a room where she's yeah, yeah, always yeah. hanging out, right? Because she has so much ample free time. But there's something to be said for like, and that's what makes these places so special. I used to go to Tonic, fucking oh for sure, three to five nights a week, and literally like those yeah, yeah. those couple of years that I was doing that, um, it's I an pa- education, totally. Yeah. And then when you get to work at those places, it was when you really, I mean. Are you still at Anthology Film Archives? No, I left after 17 years. Um, but uh, Anthology, which I, you know, I just chose to leave, uh, and I'm on, you know, uh, I mean, I love the place, but yeah. uh, I think it's a school. It's a sacred site. I, I think it's a sacred site. I think it's an educational, uh, you know, um, what's it called? You audit classes. I think Anthology is like auditing classes. Yeah. And um, I think the people, the regulars who are as eclectic as it comes and from all strange walks of life and the same exact type of personality dynamic as I was just talking about with mm-hmm. like the experimental music aficionados, yeah. you know, you can't beat that. Yeah. And to have a place like that 
either it's one scene or you know a m- multiple like when i was um from like 18 to 25 let's say um i started working in anthology when i was like maybe 19 years old you approached anthology you said i know what this place is and i want to be part of it no, it came around a different way. Um, I moved to New York uh, to attend NYU, and I saw a flyer hanging up that uh, said, you know, do you like movies? Do you have a good memory for <laughs> – it gets back to that tri- uh, Jeopardy. You know, like, yeah. trivia. Right. Uh, and uh, <laughs> do you know how to use America Online? All of <laughs> All of which I did. Right. <laughs> My sister had put America Online on our computer after she got back from college uh, one summer. So, and it was 10 bucks an hour, which I thought was just like. Be a rich man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Can you believe it? And so I got this job, which, to shorten the story, turned into working for something called the New York Underground Film Festival. Yeah. Which by the time I was like 21 or so, I was. Um, the programmer of wait were you studying film at nyu i was studying um cinema studies and journalism Uh um and uh eventually i dropped out okay um so i was working at this festival i got hired by anthology uh through the festival because the festival had been hosted anthology i had come to know the staff they needed a new theater manager and i became it uh and so I worked in anthology from like the time I was 19 until I was around 25. And through working there, we had reciprocity with other movie theaters, um, museums, things like that. I had a lot of friends, you know, in the music community. So I I could go see movies for free. I Mm -hmm. could get into museums for free. Mm -hmm. I went to lots of galleries. Mm -hmm. I went to endless amounts of music shows. I had the best. That's why I dropped out of college. I was learning from doing yeah i didn't have to go to school to like read a book about how to do it you know and that was to me so great because i learned from the calendar of events happening in new york in those oh, years God. remember you'd open up the back of the village voice oh yeah tuesdays it came out tuesday, you would wait. tuesday night but around 10 p.m depending yeah, yeah. where your stop was yeah well, or if you just went and waited at astor place that was the first place they dropped them off yeah. right by the at that newsstand right yeah. in front of the starbucks so you'd be there, and then I remember when like Time Out came out. You know, this is totally uh, there's no listings online, and you know flyers just in record yeah. stores. There was yeah, just yeah. this is how I scheduled my life. Me too. You know, it's so exciting. Yeah, it was the best. But then it got to a point when I was 25, where a number of things sort of befell me, where uh, I was always busy. But I didn't know if I had a career. And I started to think about, like, what am I doing? Like, I could do this for the rest of my life, but what's the, like, next thing to do? What is your work? And Yeah, well, what, yeah, how do, you know, programming a film festival it happens, uh, you know, for a week once a year, but takes six months to organize, and which pays next to nothing. I don't think I, it's a sustainable. Right. And then on the movie front, running around to movies and seeing two or three movies a day. It was wonderful, but it then started to feel just like I'm taking in so much, I can't remember what I saw. Uh-huh. And then in the music front, getting bored with a lot of what I was seeing uh-huh. and a lot of the people uh, who I, you know, let's say was voraciously into. And then after the 80th concert, not saying that they're not talented, just saying like, I, 
I don't need to be a card-carrying member at right. every show. And so getting into this, I wouldn't call it a malaise, but this kind of like moment of uh, repetition leading me to wonder what's next, and then discovering that there was, um, there is, a film archiving profession. So I was around film. I was working at a film archive, but I hadn't thought You'd amassed all this information about yeah, directors and, total and geek. context. And, I'm a total geek about that stuff, yeah. you know? And so I thought, like, how, how could I do something? And I learned that there was a school of film preservation at uh, the George Eastman House Museum in Rochester, New York, and um, that, you know, this is a profession. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, what I did was I basically I struck a deal with uh, Jonas Makis, the founder of Mythology, and felt she hadn't had a archivist for a decade. Plus. And all those films, all the Maya Darren, all that stuff, Everything. which is up there collecting the, dust, just, just, just not being properly managed, right? Um, and uh, there hadn't been money to have somebody in that position. So I struck a deal with Jonas that I would apply to the school and uh, get in if I could, and if. If it happened, he would find money to bring me back as the archivist. And so we made the pledge. I got in. I went up. Uh, he followed through. Um, he got um, a uh, patron uh, to pay for my salary, uh, which brought me back. And then, you know, for 17 years, uh, well, I should say then maybe that wasn't 17 years. That was uh, for 13 years or something like that. I was the... Uh, archivist and later curator so it was kind of born this direction I, I went in if I was 18 and you said to me what are you going to do with your life I wouldn't even known that this is right. it it just came through a deep cultural involvement from having interests that were very broad rather than like I'm into this sort of thing I'm into that sort of thing by just being into a lot of different things I wouldn't say I found myself, but I found that, like, I uh, knew where I wanted to um, focus. Uh-huh. And, and I wouldn't have known that had I not spent so much time uh, investing myself in every aspect of my uh, collector uh, right. kind of mentality. Yeah, it's going around taking it all in, but also being around people that are talking about things in very abstract and interesting ways and very concrete and objective ways where, you know, you don't just go to a movie and say, oh, that movie was really good and then go out to dinner. You're actually, you know, discussing the the context in which it came out, the work that came before it and what it says, you know. Also, to me, I came to realize that in the realm of film as well, in the realm of, you know, every art, uh, there are great works and great artists whose... um, uh, who need attention. And when I say attention, I certainly, uh, you know, an audience, but I'm talking preservation. Like yeah. these films, which I love and cherish, um, there's no good prints of them or they're falling apart or the original, um, was shot, uh, on positive film and doesn't have a negative. So you can't make new copies anymore. You have to make a negative to do that. And so this sort of urgency for me to not just buy the record, you know, or buy the DVD, but make kind of feel this sense that, oh, it needs to be guaranteed that access to this work will be available for generations to come and that others will be able to see how important this is instead of it just living amongst a small cult 
of people who dig it. Yeah. You know? Now, the other flip side of that is that the stuff I like tends to be weird mm-hmm. uh, or non-mainstream. And um, there's no chance of your dad or my dad or the general public liking this sort of work right. on a grand scale. But for those like us and future people with bigger ears and bigger eyes, you know, to know that it's going to be there for them is important. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Is there, I mean, I guess I have two questions. Uh, one is, all right, yesterday afternoon, mm. I had a meeting with Zorn. Um, we went out to lunch, we had a meeting, and then we were wrapping up. I said, hey, what are you doing right now? I got to go over to the Vanguard uh, to have a meeting with, with Debbie, you know, yeah, who's yeah. like the second generation owner of the Vanguard. So we go to the Village Vanguard at 2.30 in the afternoon, and I, I ended up spending two and a half hours hanging out at the Vanguard with John and with Debbie, who literally grew up in the Vanguard and oh, is now sure. running yeah, it. Yeah. And she's now, like, I'm, I'm sitting in those seats. I'm smelling, like, the old beer. And she's, like, telling stories just kind of very casually about, you know, what Max Roach used to do when he was in there and shit. Oh, my God, amazing. And, and to me, this is, like, the great, like, I, I yeah, walked, yeah, I yeah. said to Debbie when I left, I said, just so you know, like, this is why I moved to New York. You just made... <laughs> more yeah, than yeah. my day like this was great yeah 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 did you have a feeling of that at anthology yeah because you, you you know one of the things about that job through uh being involved with um restoration but also co-programming the theater so that that brought me into touch with living artists uh who were making work uh or, or showing work that they'd made um as well as working with artists uh through a process of you know, bringing older works back to life. And um, a lot of the interactions I had, it's like kind of an oral history project that I didn't have a tape recorder on for. Yeah. Just being told stories and, and anecdotes. Uh, you know, there's a great um, experimental animator uh, named Robert Breer, who uh, super important within the uh, uh, American avant-garde of the 50s, 60s, 70s. And um, by the time I started working with him, he was in his late 70s, early 80s. Um, he was very hard of hearing, wore hearing aids. And, you know, instead of being like, you know, the tendency to like scream at people who can't hear, he was always screaming, um, even though he didn't, I don't know why. <laughs> but he would just tell these like fantastic stories about Paris in the 50s when he met yeah. Duchamp or when he, uh, Klaus Oldenburg, made the giant cake that, Klaus had at the store, you know, this legendary um, happening venue. And, you know, just all of this filtered down one generation, you know, type of history. Um, it was something I would never um, walk away from, you mm-hmm. know. I I love that um, feeling of connection mm-hmm. that you get to these things that brings you closer to it. It's like, it's like having um, – it's better than liner notes – Oh, it's, God, be- yeah. it's better than an academic treatise. It's better on than a documentary. Somebody. It's better than a documentary. Um, I love that. And, you know, you sitting in the Vanguard and hearing from her the stories that are her life, but also uh, the sort of backdrop of this landmark venue and like the human aspect of it, not just like, 1963 Coltrane right it was nothing like that at all no just to hear like the reality of it there's nothing like that yeah there's nothing like that it it feels so 
I don't know. I, I, I it, it's never lost on me when I get to experience that kind of no. stuff, you know. And I remember when I first uh, started, like, because when I moved here, and I, I mean, I'm still a pretty shy person, but I was like terribly shy. And um, did you know Suzanne Fiol? Oh sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. She, you know, she gave me like a. She's like, oh, if you want to like do the door at issue pro- back when it was on Sixth Street. Yeah, yeah, back at the very first venue. Yeah, yeah and yeah. so you know, after I would, she would let me, you know, kind of work there a little bit, and then we would go out after the show with whoever the artist was, you know, and I would just sort of sit in the table and oh, yeah, like yeah. and listen to these artists who I really respect, like talk shit. Yeah. You know, talk yeah, shit yeah. about so and so the concert promoter, talk shit about the, oh, yeah. you know, and it's there's nothing like. Um... Being the quiet person at the table for those things. I, I have that because, like, as I mentioned, being the programmer of the New York Underground Film Festival, basically when I was still a kid. Yeah. You know, I have a beard. I remember consciously growing the beard so that I would look older. Uh-huh. So that some of the people who I was around, you know, very uh, within that world and certainly to me, you know, like name recognition people, I wouldn't look like such a little Midwestern uh, hick baby. Right. And, um, also being naturally sort of shy and also just happy to listen, you know, just overhearing slander or gossip yeah. or whatever, um, I valued that seat at the table, you know, and I also stayed quiet because at that point in my life, what could I really say? What could I add to the conversation? Right. You know, I'm not going to impress anybody. No. So just going to sit and listen. It's the best. Wow, issue back on 6th Street. I was trying to remember recently which street it was on, if it was on it that was or 7th. It was 6 between B and C. 6 between B and C. Yeah, on the north side of the street. I remember going there a number of times, but I feel like the first show was Alan Lick's Digger Choir. I think I might have been there for that. Yeah, you, you know, Alan made us, the, I think there like, were two lines of people, and you had to um, shout. I mean, it was an old, the Diggers, you know, it was yeah, like yeah, an yeah. old thing. But, um, oh, yeah. That was such a funny venue. It was it was. Yeah. And they did a lot of unique stuff there. I remember one afternoon, um, Suzanne's daughter, who at the time was probably seventh grade, sixth grade, her classmate uh, and I think boyfriend at some point was Steve Buscemi's son. Oh, okay. And his son had a band called uh, oh, right, Laser. Because they all lived over in Slope. In the Slope, yeah. Right, right. So Suzanne booked a show. I'm pretty sure it was called Laser. Laser <laughs> did an afternoon matinee. And the two people that showed up to help kind of get the space ready were me and Steve Buscemi. Nice. And so I spent, you know, half an hour with Steve Buscemi, like, beating out the dust from the rug and just sort of, you know. Shooting the shit. Being two guys just working yeah, on getting yeah. a space together for a show. It's yeah, amazing. That's it's amazing. amazing. Yeah, that's great. Stuff like that's hysterical. So wait, so, but as far as, like, your own work and your own creative output. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do, how much of you sort of figuring out your tools that you're going to work with was similarly holistic to in in terms of all the stuff you were taking in, and how much of it was like a departure from traditional filmmaking? Well, I um, started making films when I was in like junior high school. Mm-hmm. I was given a Super 8 camera, which was already an out of date. Uh, thing. I mean, but did you recognize the coolness of that? Yeah, the, the, totally. I mean, I loved it because well, what happened was, you know, my father. I got a camera, and um, my father, on his way to work, uh, near near his office, was a uh, photo or sort of uh, motion picture film processing place where, if you dropped it off, you know, in the morning, you could have it back in the afternoon. So um, 
I would go and get film, which at that point was on like all the clearance racks at like pharmacies and, and mm-hmm. you know, Kmart type stores because home video was the market. Um, and throughout junior high school and high school, I was shooting Super 8 films. I didn't really know too much technically. There was nobody else I know who was doing this. Um, but it allowed me to do a few things. One is that um, by making films, I could show them in places, including my school, including um, a, a club in uh, St. Louis where they thought it was really funny that this like little high school kid would come mm-hmm. and show his films between uh, acts. I once... Showed my film before Zenny Giva concert. Oh, yeah. K.K. Knoll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I once showed it on a bill with um, some of the guys for who are in Wilco now. Uh, uh, oh, Glenn Kochi. And- uh, not Glenn Kochi. Uh, the, the one they were like, um, no, no, when it was like Uncle Tupelo. What, oh, G- yeah, 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 yeah. those guys. I mean, I, they would let me show stuff, and so that way I could get into un- underage. I could go see um, older people performing. Uh, but... As a sort of young filmmaker, I was super pretentious, you know? And I wasn't pretentious like I'm going to make like Citizen Kane. I was really interested in what I thought was experimental cinema without having seen any. Because I was in St. Louis. And I was very aware growing up of Andy Warhol. Because his name was Andy. And Uh my name was Andy. And that was enough. And so I had read about these films, which were not commonly available. Were like flaming creatures or something? No, more like, you know, screen tests and kiss and and sleep. And so I made my own, like, Super 8 knockoffs of these sorts of things. Um, And I was very interested in that more so than um, an action movie or a science fiction movie or anything like that. Um, I was interested in what I thought was probably avant-garde without seeing it or having seen it. When I moved to New York, it was to study film initially, but in the first week of that uh, at NYU, I learned that um, you have to... uh, I was told, to make a film, you have to have a storyboard. I was told, to make a film, you have to have insurance. Hmm. And then in another class, the teacher was talking about technical stuff in 35 millimeter and i asked a question about super 8 and was told um why would you want to shoot on super 8 the goal is to shoot on you know 35 Mm -hmm. so i just dropped out so i was interested in all of this sort of avant-garde stuff uh at first from a distance and then once i had access you know this continual process of watching you know, uh, classic and contemporary experimental films, going to the these venues, um, trying things out, like fucking around with like two projectors instead of one, you know, mm-hmm. shooting abstraction instead of, uh, you know, normal, let's say, footage. Mm-hmm. And so I had years of doing this and, you know, making little baby pieces and showing them and, you know, with group shows, the people and things like that. But I don't think my more mature work came until after having traveled in that realm and within the scene for so long and having had so many ideas that eventually kind of I worked through or evaporated because I came to see that what I was interested in was more or less something that I wasn't seeing. You know, I, I came to understand, as happens, you know, 
with music too that they become kind of particular genres and modes mm -hmm. and that even making something experimental you can fall into the same traps over and over again and I came to see without naming names that a lot of people in my community just kept making the same thing over and over and over again and that within experimental filmmaking your uh, signature became like a technique that you alone used yeah. or that you pioneered right and the thing that I started to see after so many years of this is that I wanted to move in the direction of what I'm not seeing. And so, like, one of the things I noticed was nobody ever does anything with humor. No mm -hmm. one does anything that invokes, like, the autobiographical or the personal. They just do things where it's like flicker. Mm -hmm. Or it's like, with the sound, it's this harsh and abrasive mechanical sound that starts quiet, gets loud, gets mm -hmm. quiet mm -hmm. again. Or stays loud all the way through or you know like these sort of tropes that started to appear and while i'm not saying that a lot of people who work in this i don't like their work i i can definitely appreciate it i just wanted to like keep finding gaps where i could like throw myself into it and not feel comfortable and not know what i'm doing and stumble around a bit and make a work and then uh, abandon it and make some other new mm -hmm. thing and not get trapped with a uh, uh, style. Mm -hmm. I do not want to have a style. Mm -hmm. uh, I would love to be an old person looking back at my work and uh, looking and wondering who made this. What is this yeah. schizophrenic mess of shit? <laughs> you know, that, that to me is the goal. Yeah. Absolutely. But also, I will say this, too. Film-wise, I think I have always found more inspiration outside of film than I do within film. Sure. That when I think of film, I will think of structures that come out of music um, or literature um, or things like that. And um, I don't... Like when I when I'm busy making movies, like I don't watch movies. I'll listen to music. Mm -hmm. I'll read books. I let other stuff filter into my consciousness, but I don't ever want to sit and watch somebody else's work mm -hmm. at that point. I want to have like a kind of my other part of the brain open to yeah, yeah, yeah. different directions. I think that's common across many many uh, mediums and platforms. I mean, like I made this record or it came out last year, but there were three movies that I was watching on loop as I was working on the record and it was like I want the feel of those movies in this record yeah, you know? yeah for sure for sure um, so well, I think, I what think, were the movies uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre oh great one uh, There Will Be Blood <laughs> great and then, strangely enough or not strangely enough uh, predictably enough uh, No Country for Old Men oh yeah yeah there's a groove there yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Um, but but I always I always wonder like with film like it also seemed like if you have the urge and you have the impulse of an improviser, the concept of having to look at a project that could consume anywhere from a year to five years of your life seems like really daunting and sort of it's rough. a turnoff. It, well, you know, it is. I had a point. And then it's fixed. Like once you that's put the, the final cut on it, like it, that's what it is. It goes both ways because, you know, I started off making what you, you know, films, you know, short films. I yeah. four or five minutes long 
And then um, I got into making live work, work which would rely on multiple projectors or other performers, um, you know, live music aspects. And I was excited by that because it would never be the same piece twice. Right. Even if it had the same elements, each performance would alter it. Um, and, you know, and at the same point, I always wanted to, like, every time I got an invite to do something, make a whole new piece. I got to a point with all of that where I said to myself, my God, I just broke my back working for a month and a half on one piece that I'll never do again because it was so site-specific mm -hmm. or performer-specific that 40 people saw. And I can't deal with that. I need repertoire. Yeah. And so I need to make pieces that are repeatable, which, of course, is me saying I need to make films again. Yeah. Although I didn't really... I didn't really... Uh, I, I moved both ways. You know? I think that's really natural. Yeah, but the improviser impulse to me is what's so important because when I make performances, especially if I'm working with others, I'll never tell everybody the full score. Mm -hmm. I'll only let you know what you're supposed to do. I won't tell you what I'm going to do because I want a genuine um, surprise or something to happen within the course of the performance for others as well as for me. Mm -hmm. I'll know, you know, I'll do a piece where I know it's 23 minutes long and I have markers within it where I have to get here to you know turn this on or, or this film which is one aspect of it is six minutes so it happens around right minute 12 things like that but i leave plenty of space in there to improvise and change my mind and to set traps for myself or to catch up however it all works out on the filmmaking side the reason i vacillate and why i can't just stick with making films is that by the time i'm done making a film whether it's analog, on film, or, or digitally, I'm done. Like, I don't even want to look at it. Like, right. I, I'm, I'm done with it. But the fact of the matter with films is that you have to shepherd them out into the world. A performance happens once. The worst part about that is you have no way to evaluate it. You were doing it. So mm -hmm. it's very hard to know if it was good or bad or mm -hmm. how people perceived it. But a film, to sit and watch my films over and over again, you know, in, in solo presentations or class visits... I don't get more enjoyment out of them. I get more critical of them. Uh, and I don't want to sit and deal with it. So that's always a that's always this sort of hiccup that brings me back to something that is more a structured improvisation where I want to have a liveness to it. I don't want to feel tired of it, sick of myself, you know, by the end of a piece. Yeah. I was going to make a feature five years ago. I shot a little bit of B-roll with a cinematographer. He was going to shoot it. I was going to direct it. It really was going to be a... Uh, Dalachinsky was one of the stars. Uh -huh. Steve Dalachinsky. It was a heist movie. And then I said to myself, wow, this is going to cost sixty to 70000 bucks." And that's nothing, considering no, how much those things can cost. Cheap. Yeah. I had made a film right before that that was an odd length, 48 minutes. I had submitted it uh, kind of unofficially, you know, just sending it to the programmers of uh, Sundance and the New York Film Festival. I was told by Sundance, it's too weird for the New York, I mean, for, for Sundance. This is a film that uh, Corsano, Chris Corsano did the score for. Okay. And then I was told by New York, it's not weird enough for the avant-garde section. What? So I was just like, this weird, I don't know what I'm doing. So then I, the idea, I'm going to make a feature film 
which is not going to be normal because I don't know how to make a normal feature film. Right, and that would be, and it's not gonna, it's not gonna be the weirdest thing ever because I'm not trying to make an avant-garde film. I do want to make a film that like seven out of ten people might want to see. Right, <laughs> but I just felt just like I don't want to go into debt for this. Right, you know, and spend two years plus of my life on it because, again, the making it's one part. Getting it out into the world. I mean, like and going through that cycle of just repeating yourself over and over again. You know, having the same conversation over and over again. Yeah. It's like it's, it's and putting yourself also, and this is a particular thing in my film, at the whim of a circuit that is frankly quite useless, uh, which is the festival circuit. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, talking about sort of being humbled by the idea that anybody would come to your film. Like, I'm super happy that like the, you know lower left Arkansas Film Festival would want to show it, but, like, I'm not sure that's why I made it, you know? (laughs) You know? Yeah. There's a certain, and I hate to think of success, but there's a certain way to measure what what the work is going to do by where it might potentially go. Sure. And uh, and that does affect it in the long run. But also, I mean, you know, something you said, and I've certainly experienced this myself, is, like, you know, I, I continue to work on my musical output. I continue to evolve, I think, you know. And part of that is accepting that some things I can do really well, some things I can't do very well. One thing I'm getting better at doing is doing things the way that I do them. But certainly oh, if yeah. I try to do, oh, yeah. you know, like a straight jazz quartet, like, I can't do that. And it's going to sound like <laughs> – it's like why, why would you cast a guy in your film to be an English speaker even though he's really – it's not his native language. You know, it's kind of like that. Like, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, if you objectively know what makes something good, then like why would you make such a poor decision? No, no, of course. And for me, it's like uh, – I, I – you know, I think about this with um, what Schoenberg told Cage. Like, you know, you don't have any sense of uh, – what's he said? Melody or something like uh-huh. that? And he says, you're always going to be hitting in your head against a wall. And Cage said, well, that's what I'll do then. I'll just keep hitting my head against a wall. And I I definitely feel that with what I do. It's just what I do. Yeah. I can't make too many uh, conscious changes to it because my um, unconscious is, is uh, at the wheel. I'm just always doing what I – my new project right now – I got to a point, and you know, I, I hate when people say, I'm never going to do this again, I'm never going to do that again. Like, but I got to a point where I don't feel like making any, a movie right now, okay. but I have an idea. And so I've been writing a play um, about the lawyers, Salino and Barnes. Oh, they just split. I know, it's tragic. Yeah. Tragic. Um, I'm a long-term, uh, long-term obsessive about Selena and Barnes. I did make a, a video about them in 2003, um, and um, I'm very fascinated by them. And so I have somehow been... I, w- I was in Brooklyn a little while ago, and I saw their ad on a bus uh, uh, stop, and the sun, it was like the magic hour of light, and the yeah. sun was hitting it in such a way that it was like this glorious guys are geniuses. thing. Yeah. And I just thought to myself, wow, I thought I was over them. But I'm kind of back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I I'm not joking. I have um, tons, hundreds of of, of of like pages of writing about Slano and Barnes, and so I was sort of combing through it now and, and figuring out like this thing. But it's in a medium that I can't really say I've ever 100 percent worked in before, mm-hmm. which is theater 
I don't know what would make me think I'm capable of, of doing theater, <laughs> but I don't feel like like it's off limits. No, I don't think so. No. And so I'm writing this piece, and um, I don't plan to be in it. You know, I, I would love but to do you, it. Are you planning on directing it? Yeah, I would like to. Yeah. Uh, and I'd like to do it, you know, at some point next year. And um, I have some ideas for a couple of the uh, sets and things like that. But I'm just going there because I feel a weird, uh, I can't stop myself from going there. Yeah. I just can't stop myself. Yeah. yeah. And that to me is um, enough reason. I might be hitting my head against a wall again. Sure. Um, but it's like instead of hitting it against the south wall, now I'm hitting it against the east wall. Right. And there's four walls in this room. <laughs> right. There's plenty of stuff to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, completely. You know? And in the way that I you know, I'm looking at this piece, again, I'm not thinking about it. I, I recognize that the format is theater, but I'm not thinking about it hundred percent through theater. Like I'm not thinking about Beckett or Ionesco or, you know, uh, Richard Foreman or things like that. Right. I'm sort of thinking about it through all of the stuff that I, you know, kind of regularly um, absorb and, 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 yeah, and filter. Yeah. You know? But I, And I think with age and experience, like, you begin to know what you need at any given moment to make that thing what it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like, also, I think you become more aware of what you don't know you don't know. Yeah, I think that's true. And I also become more aware of in looking at other work across genres um, and being more analytical as I get older and being able to say what it is I like yeah. about something. Like, for instance, we, we started off talking about um, uh, Jesus Maria, uh, the performance uh, by the uh, Joffrey Trio. Yeah. Um, and there is something in that song first of the melody it's just gorgeous it's yeah. just a just a unbelievably gorgeous tune but in the performance of it the like the space I, it's the only word i can think of to say it in paul blaze playing i mean yeah that is something i want in this play yeah like i don't i'm not talking about like oh i want it to be like when i saw the public theater and this is this mm -hmm. no no i'm thinking about like yeah that paul blaze like there's something in that beat you yeah. know, or that pulse, or whatever you want to call it, that I I would like to see visualized in theater or Absolutely. in dialogue. You know, and I I think it's you know how to translate those things. I just watched the other day. You know, I've probably seen it ten times, but it had been many years. I watched The Shining. Oh yeah, and that opening scene where they're driving up the mountain and oh, yeah, the, yeah. the shot that he takes with like the that, sun glare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. I want that. I, want, I want a record that, that sounds like that looks. I saw a film a film forum a couple weeks ago I had never seen. Um, Milos Forman. It's called... Um, oh, God. Oh, what's it called? Oh. Taking Off. Uh-huh. Um, early 1970s. And it has this opening shot that is just so killer. Um, the movie's about a girl who runs away from her parents and the parents uh, going out to look for her in the early... 1970s or downtown Greenwich Village, New York. But um, in the beginning of the film, she's at auditions for like, you know, a musical that's probably like Hair or something right. like that. But it starts with this black backdrop and then a couple young girls just pivot into the frame and are singing. And even after a, a number of seconds, you go, oh, what is going on here? And like, maybe it's at the cut when you see all these girls or people watching them and you realize it's an audition. But just the 
crazy ass drama yeah, 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 of yeah. them coming into it. I was like, I want something like that. Yeah. You know, like it was just the, the uh, it's not to copy or be influenced by the aesthetic or the action or the sound or, or whatever it is of, of what you're taking in. It's to be inspired by the experience of how you felt in the moment. Mm -hmm. To me, I want to create a work where the viewer would have that same experience with whatever I put on front of them as I do in that shot. Mm -hmm. I don't need to do that shot. Right, right. I, that's not that's fuck postmodernism. Like, no, we just we just appropriate and we do the same things. No, take the experience yeah. that one gets and find another way to do it. Don't copy somebody's shit mm -hmm. and, and and make it some kind of postmodern. Um, uh, assemblage of other people's ideas mm -hmm. and say that that's my work. Take the feeling you get from those things Absolutely. and translate them into your own work. That yeah. to me is very uh, all I could hope I could do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm I'm right there with you. Yeah, I think we did the damn thing, man. <laughs> Thanks for coming around and talking, man. Are you kidding? Thanks. This, this is fucking fun. awesome. We could talk about so many other of our shared CDs. We'll do it when we turn the mics off, and we'll do that. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, that was Andy Lampert. Did you guys enjoy that? I hope you did. I thought it was great. Andy, he's a good cat, man. Check him out. Go to andrewlampert.com. Also, you hear that music in the background? That's uh, the Jimmy Jufri Trio playing the Carla Blay composition, Jesus Maria. That's that piece that Andy and I were talking about when we said uh, it's like the best piece of music ever made. Well, here it is. That's it. Um, we'll be back next week. Until then, I hope you guys are all doing well. Adios. Adios.